The following is a message from Hope Chapel in Austin, Texas. Now, here's today's teaching. We have uh, this morning a guest speaker, uh, Amy Cogdell. Amy, come on up here, wherever you are. I'm going to let you adjust the mic for yourself in just a minute, but I'm going to say a couple more things about you, see if I can't embarrass you just a little bit. All right, okay. So um, uh, I've had someone say to me, actually uh, a couple of people say, oh, a lady preacher. Oh, like, yeah. So um, in case you don't know it, uh, two things. One, the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians are gender neutral. So if you think a lady preacher is odd, you haven't read your Bible very closely. Okay, that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is Jesus taught us that he who receives a prophet in the spirit of a prophet receives the prophet's reward. Meaning if you receive a holy person as a person who has come to deliver something for for you from God, you will actually then receive the reward that God intends. And so this morning I want us to receive what Amy Cogdell is bringing to us. She has the spiritual gift of teaching. She is a tremendous teacher, in my opinion, one of the best I've ever heard, and I've sat under her several times, and now that may put a lot of pressure on her to really do a good job, (coughs) but uh, she's a big girl, and she's up to it, so would you please welcome Amy Cogdell. So this is a teaching that I first gave in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, It was worked out when I was with Noah and Kara in August. But I began it differently in Istanbul. And I prayed, Lord, how do you want to start today? And I think the answer is, let's start at the beginning and at the end. All right? There we go. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, the supremacy of the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So brothers and sisters, you know, we are not alone. We are not the only intelligent creatures in this universe. There are beings with a different history and a different nature, not fashioned of the clay of this earth. Scripture clearly speaks of angels and demons, powers, principalities, cherubs and seraphs. By the Father's wisdom, we don't know much about these creatures. They are mostly hidden from our eyes. 
But our stories are held together and they are intertwined in Christ in whom all things came into being and all things are held together. So we're warned not to make up elaborate doctrines concerning angels or to worship them in any way. But our Father does not leave us completely ignorant. Angels are mentioned 105 times in the Old Testament, 175 times in the New Testament. Demons or Satan are mentioned 136 times in the Old Testament, 118 times in the New Testament. And these counts don't include references to the seraphim, the cherubim, the accuser, Beelzebub, powers of darkness, any other names for Satan. So clearly, these angelic beings play a role in God's cosmic plan. Now, when I was a child, I could only conceive of angels and demons as they might relate to me, right? Angels existed to protect me, and demons existed to tempt me, right? <laughs> they were big, invisible actors who would sometimes come down and influence action on the human stage. It did not occur to me until very recently that our lives might have a role to play in their world. Have you ever thought about that? That weak and blind as we humans are, our lives, our lives can bear witness in the court of heaven. They can vindicate the wisdom and the nature of God himself. And God can be glorified in our lives, not just in the sights of brothers and sisters, but in the sight of the angels and the demons, before Satan himself. And that is a life worth living. Yes. So where does this idea of a court in heaven come from? Well, actually, it occurs lots of places in Scripture. It's mentioned in Daniel, in Zechariah, in Revelation. But today I want to focus on the book of Job and a passage from Luke. So most scholars, Jewish, Christian, secular, agree that Job may be the oldest book in the Bible. It's almost certainly written in the time of the patriarchs, before there was a Jew-Gentile division. And I think that's significant for reasons I'll get to later. The book opens with a description of a righteous man named Job. He's blessed with ten children, lots of camels, hundreds of oxen, thousands of sheep. And immediately, the action moves to the court of heaven. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Job, sorry, before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Got those going? I'm sorry, I've got a lot of scripture, so I want to wait and make sure that... Just keep going? Okay. All right. We'll do it the old-fashioned way. We'll have to imagine. Now, as I said in the beginning, we don't know a lot about Satan, but here's what we can glean from scripture. This is what is regarded as Orthodox Christianity for centuries. Satan was an angelic being created before the time of men. He was glorious and strong among his brothers, and though he could see God's glory in a way that our earthly eyes cannot, he rebelled. He refused to worship God. He rebelled in a way that is terrible beyond what we can understand because he rebelled seeing God's full glory. It wasn't, it wasn't, as, um, it wasn't a moment of of unwillingness. It was an act of treason and war. 
And not only did he rebel, he led other angels into the rebellion. Revelation indicates that a third of the angelic host fell with him. Now, Satan cannot harm the father directly, but he knows that love makes the father vulnerable. Let's just think about that for a moment. The almighty God is vulnerable because he loves. And so Satan goes after all that he loves, particularly men, to poison their minds and turn them against the father. It appears he has a relatively easy task compared to angels, right? Because we've never seen the father. We're made of dust. We have small minds, right? We are prone to fears and lust of all sorts. And so Satan whispers in our ears, did God really say, is he really good? Can you really trust him? Would a good God allow such pain? You know, Satan was so bold as to whisper these insinuations to Jesus himself. If you are really the son of God, Shouldn't you prove it? Shouldn't you test it? And then later, would a good father really ask something like the cross of you? Isn't there a better way? You know, I am not sure that Jesus' death was Satan's primary goal at the crucifixion. Satan had witnessed Jesus raise people from the dead, and he'd seen God do it centuries before through Elijah. I know, I'm I'm convinced that Satan knew full well that resurrection was within God's power. Now, the full ramifications of Jesus' sacrifice, that, I think, was hid from his eyes. I don't think he could see that. But surely Satan did understand this. If he could sow doubt in the sun, if he could drive a wedge of doubt between the Father and the Son, That would unleash chaos beyond what we can imagine. And that's why all hell bore down on Jesus at the Passion. Betrayal, abandonment of friends, mocking torture. Satan hates the Son. Satan would also love to turn the Father against us men, and so he stands as our accuser day and night, saying we're unworthy of the incredibly high calling he has given us. And it is an unbelievably, unimaginable high calling. To be with him where he is, to share in the glory of Christ, to become his bride. So in the opening chapter of Job, he actually mocks the Father for putting such hope in men. Now the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil. I want to pause there. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, the Almighty God putting your name on his lips, saying, Have you considered my servant Andrea? 
that should make your heart melt that, that the almighty God could put your name on his lips. Have you considered my son, my daughter? I'd like you to think about that and pray about that for a while. And Satan answered the Lord and he said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Job, Satan is saying, Job doesn't really love you. He's in it for the money, honestly. He doesn't know you. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God allows this test of Job. And as scary and as awful as this experience is going to be for Job, the truth is it's a tremendously humble thing for God to do. God is putting his hopes on the faithfulness of a man. A man who's never seen him in glory. A man who's never heard his audible voice. And a man who's going to have every reason to doubt his goodness. God allows Satan to take Job's possessions away and his children. This is hard. But I do not think the father was callous about Job's loss. I think his eyes were riveted on his son. Because we know that Jesus, who is the manifestation of the Father, was moved with compassion for the poor, and even more for those who'd lost loved ones. Jesus himself wept at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus is not without compassion. The Father is not without compassion. At the same time, we have to remember that God looks from a totally different perspective. We believe in the resurrection by faith, but he sees it. He lives in eternity. He knows that it's he knows the certainty of the resurrection. And so, from God's perspective, the separation that we experience is for a very short time. It's for a very very short time and it is incredibly painful to men and he knows that. But I do not believe that he allows Satan to take anything away that he will not abundantly and joyously return. And so I believe that from God's perspective, allowing Job's children to die is not allowing them to perish. He desires that none should perish. But I believe he held them safely in his hand. So in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul writes as a prisoner facing death, and he writes some powerful words to his spiritual son, Timothy. He starts off like this. Join me in suffering with the, for the gospel. Join me. He thinks it's worth it. Of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted him until that day. He's not talking about 
his earthly life, he knows that he's a dead man. So God sets limits on what Satan is allowed to touch. And he guards what we've entrusted to him. He enforces those limits. Jesus, on the other hand, bore the full force of hell. The Father allowed the Son to be tested fully, hands off, no holds barred. Our suffering is limited by and held close to Jesus in his suffering. Once again, Paul is writing, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Paul himself admits, I'm perplexed. I don't understand God. I don't understand all the time, but I am not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. This is a deep and a mystical passage, but it gives us hope that our suffering is tied to Jesus. It's held inside of his. And if our suffering is held in his suffering, then our suffering will bear fruit in life, just like his did. This was true for Job as well as it is for us Christians. In him, all things are held together, things past and things present, things future. Though he wrote thousands of years before Christ, he prophesied of the Messiah. He is the first clear prophetic voice of who Jesus is and who's, what he's going to do. And so I believe that Job's suffering was not just pointing to Christ, but held in Christ, bearing a prophetic witness to one who was still yet to come. And Job passed his first test. He received blow after blow and loss after loss. And he grieved, but he did not curse God. The scripture says this. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Several years ago, some friends of ours were driving home from Houston at night when their car was struck by another driver. Jerry and Julie died instantaneously, leaving behind two teenage boys, 16 and 18. Now when Ethan, the 16-year-old, heard the news that his parents had died, he picked up his guitar. He went into a room by himself and he began to worship the Lord. Now Ethan grieved. Ethan struggled. Ethan questioned the Lord. But I tell you, Ethan's song rang out in the court of heaven that night. And I can tell you that God has deep, deep affection from that man, and he has never forgotten. He has never forgotten what Ethan did that night. Now, Satan is relentless, and he is cruel. And defeated by the first test, he appears before God again. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, 
all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Now Job was afflicted with boils all over his skin. His bones ached. He was burning with fever, and he became a loathsome, hideous sight. His wife's counsel was this. Curse God and die. Just end it. It's a temptation to despair and suicide. But scripture says Job held fast to his integrity. It says this, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, but he suffered terribly. We got slides going. I'm going to read some more scripture. Oh, there it is. Yes. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nemanthite. They made an appointment together and came to see him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This was the right response, to weep and sit and keep silent. And at this point, Job's friends were a comfort to him. And we should do the same for our friends who are suffering, because we have friends that are suffering. We can be with them, we can sit with them in silence, without trying to explain their problems, without trying to minimize or fix them, without looking on the bright side, because there was no bright side in Job's life. Now, after seven days of silence, Job lifts up his voice, and he curses the day he was born. He says, if life is this hard, I wish I had never been born. This is too hard to endure. And then he says something which makes his friends extremely uncomfortable and even angry. He blames God. He says, God is causing this. I don't understand. Why would God do this? I am innocent. Here's an example of one of many scriptures. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Now, as the Holy Spirit has given us the scripture... We know the story. We know that Satan is behind Job's suffering. It was not God's desire. But Job is a man who knows the Lord. He knows the friendship of the Lord. He understands that all of the blessings that he had came from the hand of God. And he understands that if he is suffering, it is not without the Lord's knowledge and not without the Lord's permission. Job is certain he has not sinned. And, and here, I think we, we, need to under, we need to understand something in reality. Job admits later in the book, yes, there were sins of my youth. Yes, I, I recall there were sins of my youth. It, he's not saying he is a perfect person. But what he's saying is, I know that I did not do something that caused God to get angry or that, 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 um, that justified this. I, I know I don't believe that I've done something that suddenly made me unjust in God's eyes. God is not capricious like this. Does that make sense? 
So he knows that God is somehow responsible, and he has a complaint against God, but he doesn't turn away from God. Instead, he wants to speak with him, which is an incredibly bold, audacious thing. Now, the idea that God would inflict disaster upon a righteous man messes with the theology of Job's friends. And I think that if we're honest, we find it a bit scary as well, right? How can a good God allow the innocent to suffer? Is he unjust or is he not really in control? Both of those are terrifying thoughts, right? And Job's friends can't handle the ramifications of either one of those, so they take the easy way out, which is to blame the victim. Job's friends tell him God would surely not punish a righteous man. Therefore, he must have done something wrong, or his sons must have done something wrong. Brothers and sisters, God is just. He is righteous. But we have to understand Our very salvation rides on the fact that the Father Almighty is willing to let an innocent man suffer. You understand? If we can't handle that, then we have a serious problem. Jesus' suffering is our salvation. And if we are to be with him where he is, to be like him, to be transformed into his image, well, then maybe we will be asked to be like him in suffering. Okay, here's an example of the things that Eliphaz says. Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? That stung a bit, right? How many of you have read Job all the way through? It's a really beautiful book. And you know, most of the things that Job's three friends say are really good theology. They're good stuff. The problem is that they were speaking, uh, they were speaking platitudes, things that they knew were right, things that they thought should fit. They were empty sayings. And the difference between... The difference between a platitude and the prophetic voice is a platitude is trying to make yourself feel better, trying to stay in control. I understand this. A prophetic response is, I want to see you, God. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you. That is a prophetic response. And Job was a prophet. The problem with platitudes is that God's vision is not like ours. He sees with eternal wisdom, and he has hopes and plans for us that extend beyond this life in ways we can't understand, plans that are so great, he is willing to allow pain here on earth for a short time because he knows the joy set before us. He knows the joy set before us. He knew the joy set before Jesus. And Jesus himself is the beautiful mystery that the Father was inviting Job to share in. He was entrusting something eternal to Job. He was entrusting the closest part of his heart to Job, though Job could not see it or understand it at the moment. This is what the Father knew about his servant Job, and this is why he was willing to entrust this to Job. 
Job was a prophet. He wanted to see God. He wanted what God wanted, which is hard for the angels to understand, which is hard for me to understand, that God wants intimacy and relationship with me. This is hard to understand, but this is what God wants, and this is what Job wanted. He says, I want to bring my case to court. He wants to engage God in debate, which is pretty daring, and he knows it's daring. And it may seem like pride, but I think it made the Father's heart sing. He wants to be known as he truly is. He wants to be trusted. He wants to enter into an intimate friendship with men. And don't you know these words made the Father's heart sing? Job, in the midst of his suffering, being accused by his friends, Job says this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come into his presence. Now, this is a statement no angel can make because the angels don't know death. They don't know suffering. Not like we do. There's no angel that's been blind like Job. And there's, so there's no angel that could hope like Job. That's not all Job has to say. I don't, I don't know that Job knew. I don't know what it was like for Job but in all of this, I believe he had profound revelation from the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said that Job is the oldest book in the Bible, time before Abraham, before Moses, and he's speaking the clearest, some of the clearest Old Testament prophecies that we have about the Messiah. So we're going to look at some of these scriptures. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come together to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And you know that is exactly what Emmanuel is. He's God and man. God who, uh, one with the Father, light from light, God from God, and yet he became a man like us. Job is not only prophesying, he is crying out for the Savior. He is asking God to send our Savior. Listen to this passage. This is amazing. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal my, seal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag, and you will cover my sin. Job is prophesying the resurrection. He even says, I'd rather die. I'd rather just die right now, because I know you're going to long for the works of your hands. He knows that God loves him. This is something that his friends can't say. They, his friends can't say that. They, keep, they say things like, what good is it to God if you're righteous? They do not know that God really, really loves men. But Job did. He did. Listen to this. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. You know, we have an accuser before the Lord. We have a defense attorney as well. Thanks be to God. And even then, even before, you know, Jesus was standing as a witness in heaven. 
My friends scorn me. My eye pours, pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with a neighbor. You know that was Jesus' favorite name for himself, son of man. This is my favorite. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. My eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart is faint within me. You know, brothers and sisters, the Lord came and restored Job's fortunes. But Job did not need more camels. Job did not want sheep. He had more children. But uh, that was not what satisfied Job. Do you know what Job's reward was? God himself came down in a whirlwind and spoke to him. That was Job's reward. He saw God with his own eyes. He heard him with his own voice because God was moved, because he loved him. God himself came down from heaven to speak to Job. You know, brothers, his words are written with an iron stylus inscribed in the courts of heaven forever. They're there. He has seen his redeemer. He has seen him walk the earth. You know, Job has seen Jesus walk the earth. And I assure you, that Job, Job is well satisfied. Job is, I, I believe, I believe Job is thankful for his sufferings because in his sufferings, he witnessed, he was a prophetic witness to Jesus. This is his great reward, that he participated in the mystery of Christ. He was seated first among the prophets. He has a reward that is eternal. Now, when the Lord appears to Job in a whirlwind, it, it's, a fun, it's a fun little dialogue. You should read it. But Job says these words. He, you know, God, God comes in a display of power, and Job says, ah, I have said things that I, you know, I, I have declared what I did not understand, and th- things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. On the one hand, Job is... is is repenting of presumption. On the other hand, I think the Holy Spirit is still speaking. He has spoken things too wonderful, too wonderful for him to have known. I want to place a bookmark in Job, and I want to move to the New Testament. And I want to look at another passage from Scripture about Satan and about the court of heaven. This passage begins with a promise which is both tender and glorious. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Uh, Jesus is actually, I'll, I'll, I'll set this in context. Jesus is headed towards his death. He's speaking to his 12 apostles. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. 
and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if I were Peter, I'd be thinking, that's awesome. I knew you were the Messiah. Yes, the coming kingdom. Yes. And immediately Jesus turns and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that once you have turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. That was a quick turn of events, yes. <laughs> we have the court of heaven again. Satan has asked to sift Peter like wheat. And I believe that the Lord says yes be exactly because he has such great plans for Peter. Because Peter must be tested. Love must be tested. Love must be tested. And we know how the story goes. Jabez, Job, uh, Peter is not like Job. He does sin with his lips. He denies Christ, intimidated by a slave girl. And we can be sure that Satan was gloating in heaven that day. But thankfully, in the court of heaven, the prosecution does not get the last word. Job's mediator, the one who is both God and man, defeats Satan, and he rises from the dead, and he goes looking for Peter. Peter, Jesus asked, do you love me? And do you know how that question must have stung Peter's heart? But the sin and the shame, it had to come forward. It had to come forward in order to be healed. Peter, speaking the truth, looks Jesus in the eye and says, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Still, Jesus asked a second time, earnestly and somberly, because those are the rules of the court. Do you love me? And again, Peter answers truthfully, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And at this point, I believe Jesus' heart is singing, but he has to keep a straight face. <laughs> so he asks a third time, Peter, do you love me? And now Peter is truly grieved. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And at that point, I believe the father rose and dismissed Satan from the court of heaven, or Satan ran out on his own. <laughs> because Peter couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. But that day on the Sea of Galilee, Peter was called as a witness in the court of heaven. He didn't know it but he was testifying of his love for Jesus and he was vindicating the Father's wisdom and proving Jesus' victory. Because you see, Peter, he loved God in a way that angels couldn't love him. He loved him in sin and in shame. And this was the Father's great plan that was different from the angels. Men can be redeemed, men can love. They can love me the way I love them. This was what the Father had hoped for. And Peter vindicated him. Men are not like the angels. They can repent. They can be won back. And that is glorious. That is beautiful. This means everything to the Father. I'm going to look back at the book of Job for just a moment before we close. One of Job's friends, while he was angry and wanting to defend God... He poses this question. Can a man be of benefit to God? Can he, a wise person benefit him? 
What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? And what would he gain if you were blameless? So clearly, Eliphaz believes the answer is no, that God is not moved or benefited at all by our righteousness or by our wisdom. Brothers and sisters, I believe this is what the Father wants to say to you today. Your testimony matters greatly to him. It matters greatly to him. You can bless the Father. You can bear witness to him in the court of heaven. Now, for some of you, just holding on is a powerful witness. Some of you, just not giving in to despair. Coming to Jesus and say, I will repent again and again and again. I will turn. I will bow. I will worship you. I will hang on. I will hope in you. I, that is testimony in the court of heaven. That is beautiful testimony in the court of heaven. And it may not look victorious on earth, but it makes the Father's heart sing. It is the reason Jesus came. There are others here today who have remained faithful in suffering, but you still carry pain and doubt and disappointment. And I believe the Father wants to assure you deeply that he holds your suffering close to his heart. Faithfulness in the face of your suffering rings out in the court of heaven. Like Job, like Paul, and suffering in hope and suffering in faithfulness is a participation in the story of Jesus. And I believe the Father wants to assure us all that as there is a joy set before Jesus, there is a reward for us great enough to make it all right. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it even entered the heart of man what God has ready for those who love him. I believe the Father would call us to hope in him the way Job did, to be dissatisfied with platitudes, but want to see him with our own eyes, to want to talk with him, to want to know him. I told you that um, the first version of this teaching was worked out when I was with my son and my daughter-in-law and my grandchildren in Ankara. And I think most of you know that um, I was planning to go this summer to be with them for the birth of their third child. But two days before I left, their full-term baby died in the womb. And so when I arrived in Ankara, they were still in shock and grief. But the last night that I was with them, Noah took out his guitar and Kara sang, and the three of us sat there worshiping the Lord in their apartment. And I tell you, I felt Jesus walk in that room. He was there the one through whom all things were created and through whom all things will be reconciled, the resurrection and the firstborn of the dead. He was standing there and he was listening. And you know this is the humility of God, that he wants to be loved and he wants to be trusted. And that men can bring him glory. That is his humility. He is so beautiful. He is so good. 
Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced he is worthy of all of our hope and all of our trust, and I cannot wait to see him with my eyes. Amen. So please join me. I want to offer a word of prayer. And then, um, so thank you, Amy, for, for your words. Um, I want to offer a prayer. And then I want to call us forward, those of us that, that want us to pray with you or to pray for you in some way. So those of you that are on those teams, please come down here. And, and if you just wish to be one on the teams, just come. Please come. Don't make me call you out. So we come, Father, in the name of Jesus, and we're grateful for the exhortation and the teaching that our witness is important to you, that you long for us to engage with you even when we're angry and hurting and afraid and alone and that these um, times and the, the result of the pain that comes out of our mouths even this even this is precious to you and so my, my prayer father is that we would never um, that we would never give up that it would be seared into our brains and our hearts. That you love us so immensely, so profoundly, well beyond our understanding, that even when we suffer loss, profound loss, you have not abandoned us. And your heart is still for us. And you long for us to remain knitted to you. And yet, Lord, we, we are frequently so fickle. We are so, it's hard, Lord. We're self-focused, self-centered. And, and, we, and we just say, I, Lord, that we don't, we're, not, we're not in it for the money. We're not in it for the money, for what you can do for us. Lord, that's a confession more than the truth, probably. But Lord, we want it to be true. Would you make it true in us? Would you cause us to be a people who can embrace the suffering that comes our way and not give up on you? So strengthen us to this task. And Lord, cause us to see what Amy was uh, uh, working hard to teach us this morning that it is a glory to you and a testimony to you against the voices of wickedness when we worship you even when we suffer, that we offer praise to you even in difficulty. And maybe, more important, maybe that's the most important place to turn and offer praise. So that's my prayer, Lord. You'd help us to become these, this kind of a, of a people. 
I thank you for hearing me this morning. If that's something you want, would you just say amen? Amen. All right. Please uh, stand to your feet, and uh, I want to bless you and say, God bless you as you go. Go and serve the Lord. Uh, If you can find Amy, I would recommend a hug. She's, you know, she hugs pretty well, but a lot of hugs make her nervous, so make her nervous this morning, all right? Go in peace. God bless. We hope the Lord has used this recording to instruct, encourage, and inspire you. For more information on Hope Chapel or more sermons or seminars for download, go to hope.org. Thank you for listening.